Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Enjoy a tall, cool dude. What is this? What, what are we doing? What in God's name are we doing? What? Our lives! What, what kind of lives are these? We're like children. We're not men. No, we're not. We're not men. It's the nightcap. Are we going to be sitting here when we're 60 like two idiots? We should be having dinner with our sons when we're 60. We're pathetic. You know that? Yeah, like I don't know that I'm pathetic. On WGR Sports Radio 550. So then you asked yourselves, isn't there something more to life? Yes. Yeah, well, let me clue you in on something. There isn't. All right, a little Seinfeld there to bring you into the nightcap. What's up? Joe DiBiase here for the next couple of hours, hanging out with you on WGR. Some Bills chatter to get to. An interesting thing I heard Therese Paler of Yahoo say earlier today on the station that I want to bring up. A little fantasy talk. There was a conversation on the afternoon show about vetoing. Get into that a little bit. Preseason games. And just their presence on this earth. I'm ready for that to just be stricken from the record. Get rid of it. And I got a couple of uh, fun, interesting ideas, I think, that uh, that could be put forth to get rid of the preseason. The NFL is actually putting a new proposal in, um, or they're going for one. So we'll get. I'll, I'll bring what, up what that is, too, and the merits of that idea. And also a word on the Sabres. I, I said yesterday I wanted to get some hockey talk, and I don't think I ended up getting there until very uh, the very end of the show. And there is a clip from Elliot Friedman today on Sportsnet 590, and he mentions the Sabres when talking about still unrestricted free agent defenseman Jake Gardner. And I want to get into that a little bit later. Gardner as an idea, kind of revisit him. He came up in rumors a couple of weeks ago, maybe about a month ago, um, and that there was a rumor that he might be ready to sign with the team, but they're waiting for stuff to happen. And more and more, I'm starting to think that it's possible that the Sabres are that team. So I'll get into that later, too. But first, Therese Paler, Yahoo. You maybe just heard him on with the, on the got with the guys. If you didn't, it's on demand at WGR550.com. There's one specific thing that Therese said that made me kind of think about that and go, hmm, okay. Because we've spent a lot of time thinking about the bill ceiling and the bill's floor. And, of course, we've also spent a lot of time with Allen and what his ceiling could be and what his floor could be. And interesting to hear a guy, a smart guy, from an outside, unbiased point of view and what his thoughts are of Allen, especially a guy, by the way, that likes Allen, what he thinks the ceiling is for this guy. If you missed it, here is what Therese Paler said on that subject. Mahomes is a completely different deal. Josh Allen's not Mahomes. He's not going to be Mahomes. That's not reasonable. Mahomes is generational. But I'm telling you, is that same guy who's been pretty consistent on that the whole time, he has Pro Bowl talent. He does. If he continues to develop and gets good coaching, he can lead you on a deep playoff run. I believe in that. So wouldn't it be interesting if Allen 
doesn't really become the guy that we all expected they were going for when they drafted him. Like, what? Rewind back to last spring and think about when all this time was being spent on each guy, each quarterback, what the talk was about Allen specifically. And you go back to that time, and I think you'll hear that he is the boom or bust prospect. He is the guy with a high ceiling and an incredibly low floor. And it's not all that likely that he's going to fall somewhere in between because of his arm, because of his strengths, and because of what his weaknesses are, his inaccuracies. There's a very there's a chance he is amazing, and there's a chance that he is absolutely nothing and just can't figure it out in the league. And after year one, and given some of the stuff that I'm hearing about him and seeing some of the film breakdowns about Allen and seeing what the Bills are trying to do around him, I'm wondering if it's not likely at this point that Allen is kind of what Therese Paler is saying there. Pro Bowl level quarterback. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, all right, Pro Bowl, like that, that's what we're talking about. Guys who make the Pro Bowl are what? They are, they're, you know, they're pretty good. But at the end of the day, we're not talking about Tom Brady. We are not talking about uh, Aaron Rodgers. Mahomes went last year, but I doubt he's going to be in the Pro Bowl much more often than that. And, like, look who some of the quarterbacks are. Like, Kirk Cousins is in the Pro Bowl a couple of times. Uh, Tyrod Taylor is in the Pro Bowl. Matt Schaub is a pro guy who made the Pro Bowl. Like, Andy Dalton, Pro Bowl. Like, those are the guys we're talking about. Pretty good, named quarterbacks, franchise quarterbacks. Even Ryan Tannehill, I think, made one. They're franchise quarterbacks, but you wouldn't call them superstars. So how much is that really worth? Now, on the other hand, Paler does mention there a guy good enough to make a deep playoff run. Even that. Like, what are we talking about? Joe Flacco was a guy that was good enough to make a deep playoff run. He won a Super Bowl. He got hot. Is he a franchise quarterback? I don't think so. And the rate, the team that had him doesn't think so anymore because they shipped him off to, to, to uh, Denver and drafted a quarterback they don't even want to throw the ball with. Nick Foles was good enough to have a late, uh, deep playoff run. Back up around the league a lot of his career. Now he's in Jacksonville. The team moved on from him. So, Pro Bowl, all right. Deep playoff run, all right. But... Ultimately, this is part of the reason my bar has always been really high for Allen. To me, Pro Bowl, deep playoff run, those are great accomplishments. I would think that I would be somewhat happy with a result like that from the development of this kid, this guy. I don't know if I can call him kid. He's not that much younger than me. Um, But that's not what we were looking to draft. We're not looking for the guy that can take part of the team. And if everything around him is great, if the offense around him has talent all over the place, if the coaching staff always knows what they're doing, if the defense is always good, then he's good enough to win. No, I don't want the then. The reason you draft him is because you drafted the guy with the high ceiling. You drafted the guy with the potential that if he makes it work, you can have some holes on your roster. You can have a underwhelming defense. You can have a poor running game. You can have a bad offensive line. 
and he'll make up for it. That's a true franchise quarterback. That's not Andy Dalton. That's not Kirk Cousins. That's not Nick Foles. And that's not Joe Flacco. Those are all quarterbacks who have either made the playoffs or made deep playoff runs and have made Pro Bowls. To me, that's not good enough for this guy. With that arm, with that those that skill set, we should be wanting a lot more than that. I think we should be expecting more than that. Because if that doesn't happen, I'm going to want them to move on. If I was a Miami Dolphin fan the last five years, I would have been pleading with them to move on from Ryan Tannehill a lot sooner than they did. If I were a Bengal fan, I would be pleading with them right now, move on from Andy Dalton. He is only so good. He's not. These are not quarterbacks that, like I said, can make up for other stuff. It's not Aaron Rodgers, where if they have no running backs left and their defense is not that good and their coach is a boob in Mike McCarthy, he's still going to make them a playoff team. He's still going to make them really good. The, the the Texans with Deshaun Watson, if they're got a bunch of injuries at wide receiver, Will Fuller, Kiki Cootie, like two of their best receivers, always hurt. Not much of a running game behind Lamar Miller. A very bad offensive line. Guess what? Deshaun Watson is special. Deshaun Watson is good enough to overcome all of those things and make that a playoff team. Russell Wilson in Seattle. The offensive line, just like with Watson, dreadful. Just terrible. Not a big, not a great running game. Has not, not had a great running back since Marshawn Lynch. The defense isn't as good as it used to be. Russell Wilson, he is special. That team still right there, playoff team almost every year. That's what we need out of Josh Allen. That's what the bar should be. Because if you don't meet that bar, I don't know if I want to hang on to you long term. So I think that needs to be the goal. That needs to be the expectation. And even though I think what Therese Paler is saying here is meant as a compliment, hey, this is a guy that has Pro Bowl talent. Like that, You would think that's a compliment. It is. But to me, at the end of the day, I think you still want a little bit better than that. You still want to have a quarterback that you can trust and not have down years like a lot of those guys I mentioned have had. You can trust him to be consistent in his production. Maybe not week to week, but year to year. You can be a guy that is consistently considered in the MVP conversation. Like ultimately, wouldn't you want that? You never he, he might never win it. He might never win it. But think about like what Cam Newton is. Think about what like Matt Ryan even are. Like maybe that would be the minimum I would want for my for Allen. He needs to be a guy that, at the very least, is capable of winning like an MVP trophy. Once. Because there are quarterbacks around the league that are in it every year. I, I understand that. Like Rodgers and Mahomes and, and Andrew Luck. Like when those guys are all healthy, they are in the MVP conversation. Then there are quarterbacks who, you know, they play 10 years. They're pretty good. And they'll have a year or two where they're in that conversation. Matt Ryan had that one amazing year where he won MVP. Cam Newton had that one amazing year where they made the Super Bowl and he won MVP. Matt Matthew Stafford, he didn't win the MVP, but he had that one amazing year earlier in his career where he threw for over 5,000 yards and he was throwing the ball all over to Calvin Johnson. I'm sure that was a part of it, but Matthew Stafford was capable of putting that one tremendous season together. Does Allen have that? Does Allen have that in them, in him? That is something above that other tier of quarterbacks I was talking about before. That's something better than that. And 
I really think not just for the Bills' sake, but for the division's sake, if we want to be in this conversation long-term, what should the expectation be for Allen? Part of it is what I just said. The other part of it is you got to be better than Sam Darnold, and you got to be better than Josh Rosen. Now, the latter one there with Rosen, I think you might not be too worried about that right now. I don't think you would have reason to be too worried about that right now. But after Brady's done, whenever that inevitably ends up being, could be after this year, could be four years from now, who knows, who takes over the division? Or do you have a struggle? Do you have a back and forth? Like, I think about the AFC North for this, year after year after year. Like, imagine what it's like to be even like a Ravens fan or a Bengals fan. For a decade, you go into the year and who knows, the division could be anybody's. Now this team might be favored, this team might be favored, but you really know at the end of the day three teams could win the division. And we have not lived in a reality like that in how long. At the very least, he needs to be good enough where he matches, if not exceeds, what Sam Darnold becomes with the Jets. And me personally, I like Darnold a little bit more than Allen. I've said that repeatedly. I like Darnold a lot as a quarterback. That's not to say I don't like Allen. I really like Allen at this point as well. But I think Darnold's going to be a really good quarterback. To what extent? Maybe he doesn't become as good as you know the Cam Newtons and the Matt Ryans. Maybe he is in that third tier with the the Daltons and the Tannehills and the, the Flaccos, like the... The placeholder franchise quarterback is really what that is. That's all I'm saying. All I'm saying is I want the expectation to be a little bit higher than that. And that's better than, you know, Trubisky last year with the Bears. That's better than Jameis Winston with the Buccaneers. Better than Marcus Mariota with the Tennessee Titans. Dak Prescott with the Cowboys. Now, it depends on what you think of Dak Prescott, but I think he's kind of in that territory. Where does Allen ultimately land? And the reason I'd be optimistic that he is capable of exceeding that bar, that just Pro Bowl level good bar, is because of his arm, because of his athleticism, and I would even say because of the the seemingly big step he's taken in his development. The I thought a big factor in what he might look like this year if you watch Dan Orlovsky's uh, video on social media or if you missed him he was on our station yesterday talking about Allen the pre-snap process the knowing when to utilize certain weapons knowing when to pick up blitzes knowing when to actually run at, or scramble as opposed to taking your check down all of that put together I think there's a lot of reason to believe right now that Allen's going to be better in those areas than we maybe once thought. Now, the one thing I'm still will never, unless he does it, I'm not going to assume he's going to get better at it, is his accuracy. But if everything else is going well, then he could be the guy that ultimately becomes a very good quarterback despite not having the accuracy. But that's if he gets almost everything else right. We know he's got the arm strength. We know he's got the athleticism. Does he get the pre-snap process right? Will that actually translate to the regular season? Will he know when to throw it to Cole Beasley? Will he know game situations and when that's a smart idea? Will he know when to take a shot? Will he know when to know if John Brown's coming open over the middle or on a deep post? Like, Will he know how to see those things? And I think a lot of that, there is reason to be optimistic about him right now, which is why that's where I ultimately have landed with him yes my bar is very high for him but I think that that should be the case with all Bills fans 
And I also think that there's that's not meant to be a criticism. I think there's reason to be optimistic he can meet a high bar even like that. But it should exist not just because of what we should want out of a quarterback. It should exist because of who they drafted. This would be an entirely different conversation for me if they had drafted Josh Rosen. Entirely different. That guy needs some other stuff around him. I think he's good. I think if in the right situation, I actually really like Josh Rosen. I wanted the Bills to draft him. Looking back, a little happy they didn't do that, to be fair. I would definitely admit that I was wrong at this point on that, for sure. I don't think you know how you would begin to argue the other side of it. But if we wanted the quarterback that's only a certain amount of good and the wanted the quarterback where you don't really have that that extra layer that you could expect out of him, then you would have drafted Josh Rosen or even Lamar Jackson because I think I'd want to say Josh Allen's ceiling is a lot higher than Lamar Jackson, not just because he was drafted so much higher, but it's because of his arm. Jackson just doesn't have it. He, I think, is a better passer than he gets credit for, but you wouldn't think he has the same capability of Allen in that respect at all. Allen's the guy that you drafted because, hey, maybe we would have rather had Mayfield, maybe we would have rather had Darnold. I, I think they would have rather had Darnold. But Allen's the guy that even if you think it's not as likely that he's as good as Mayfield and Darnold, you know he's got the capability to do it. That's why you drafted him. He might never be Mahomes, like Tavares Paler says. I would be floored if he became that good. Because like Tavares Paler said, Mahomes is a generational player. And I don't see that for Allen. But to completely dismiss it might also be wrong. Because of all that he presents as a player. And the other good news, I think, on it, listening to a lot of these smart guys, Steve Palazzolo yesterday, Dan Orlovsky yesterday, Therese Paler today, I think another big reason I'm optimistic, and I think a lot of Bills fans are so quick to defend him and so quick to to come to his defense, is the stuff he needs to work on is the simple stuff. Like, why did we all, why did a lot of Bills fans, I didn't do it, I I was always defending him, but why did a lot of Bills fans get on Tyrod Taylor's case? Because he didn't make the throws they really wanted him to make. He never took the chances. For me, part of that was he just didn't possess that capability, and he was an intelligent enough quarterback to know that he wasn't good enough to do that. But that is why you ultimately moved on from him. Whereas Allen, you'll come to his defense, and I think a lot of Bills fans will automatically do it, because they see him trying to make throws like that. They see a guy that he's got the whole playbook in front of him. He's got every throw in front of him. It's all available at any moment. Anything you want to do is available because of who your quarterback is. And the the questions are the, the simpler ones. It's can you check it down? Can you take the safe stuff? Can you know when to slide? Can you know when to scramble versus um, take a chance? All that stuff should be the simple stuff, and all of that stuff is a lot easier to defend than, I I know it, I tried to defend Tyrod Taylor as much as possible. You could only go so far because you knew, you just knew that there was a cap. You knew there was only so good he could be. And I think we've yet to really explore and find out how good Allen can be. And I think this year, I, I bet you I make my judgment on what he is after this season.
Because I'm a believer that good to great young quarterbacks, they'll show it, if not in their rookie year, in their second year. You will see it pretty much right away. It is a v- extreme rarity that a guy will show struggles in his first couple of years and then figure it out later. Like, this is why I got right away with on the Mariota stuff. So, I have a couple of friends who were like big, big Mariota fans when he was coming out of college. I remember that draft, having discussions with them. They were big Mariota guys. And after watching him his rookie year and then a little bit into his second year, I just was looking at him and watching him play every week. And I'm just like, I just don't see it. I don't see how this guy becomes a great quarterback. He can be good. He can be Alex Smith. I just don't see the pathway to being great. And I will say for Allen, while I'm not sold it's going to happen, that path is sitting there. He's just got to go down it. So nightcap with Jody Biasi, 803-0550 is the phone number. Like I said, I want to get into a little hockey later, and I do want to bring up a couple of interesting proposals to uh, help, if not eliminate the preseason, that's probably a, a tough one, a tough result to get to. Uh, ways to limit it, draw back a little bit from it, three games, two games, and stuff that the NFL can do to kind of make it even more interesting if they're going to keep it around. I got a couple ideas on that front, little fantasy talk, little Sabres talk. 803 is the phone number. It's the Nightcap with Jody Biasi here on WGR. Remember, he's just a kid. So with time, this structure, playing within the structure, it'll come to him. But if the Bills just kind of let him be and let him create and slowly develop, this guy's going to be a good – he has Pro Bowl talent. Um, and I just think people were in such a rush to kind of kill the guy. It was easy to just kind of miss. Like last year when he played, he was doing stuff. That is Therese Paler. You know, all of this uh, discussion I had in the last half hour, um, thinking about Allen and like, w- would you be okay with him just being Pro Bowl good? Not like a superstar, not, you know, an elite quarterback, not always in the MVP conversation, not even in the discussion for like best quarterback in the league ever, but Pro Bowl. And it's reminding me a lot of my thoughts on what's going on in Dallas right now. So what is so funny is Dallas signs Jalen Smith, the linebacker, yesterday to a long-term extension. And you have to wonder if they only did that to kind of mess with all the other guys' heads. Elliott, Prescott. Hey, we're going to sign the guy. Jerry Jones said it himself. We're going to sign the guy that has never complained, never missed a workout, blah, 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 blah. And whether they should pay their quarterback, who is good, but is he great? Is he amazing? Because I would say no to those questions. I think Prescott has been has been heavily assisted throughout his career with how good his offensive line has been, with how good the running back is behind him. And I don't know. I think if you put him, if you if you picked up Dak Prescott and you put him on the Bills last season, I'm not so sure he'd look better than Josh Allen looked. Like, what does Prescott look like when he doesn't have all of that help around him? And to me, that's what really differentiates an, a, a good quarterback from, like, a special quarterback. To me, a special quarterback can lift up what's around him if it's all not perfect and still be a good team, and he can drive that. Whereas the good quarterback is just good. You know, he can take part if everything around him is nice and everything around him is good, then you can win. But if you've got any holes, 
if you don't have a good receiver, if you don't have a good O-line, if you don't have a good run game, if you don't have a good defense, well then, now we're suddenly not talking about a great team. And I think we're going to find out this season, and if not this season, the next year, year and a half, um, whether Allen is just a good quarterback. I guess there's still a chance he could flame out. I don't know if I could see that happening after him being somewhat good last year, but I guess it could happen. But we're still trying to find out if he's going to be good or special. And I think the bar should be special. 8030550 is the phone number. We're going to hear from Marcel Louis Jacques in a few minutes uh, from ESPN. Let's go to Jonathan. Jonathan, what's up, man? You're on the nightcap. Hey, Joe. Um, this is an interesting subject because. I'm glad you have high expectations because I think the last 20 years of Bills football have low expectations. But what if I came from the future and said this year the Bills will be 15-1, and Allen's going to be voted league MVP, and they will lose the Super Bowl. And then next year will be 6-10. and That's Cam Newton and the Carolina Panthers. A lot of experts have compared Allen to Newton. Would you be okay with the Cam Newton and the scenario I just laid out? See, to me, thanks for the call, man. And I think you're right, by the way. I think that and I think it's fair, but the last 20 years have lowered our quarterback expectations. I think that's fair. Like I'm, I think it's fair not only that it's, that it's right, but I think it's fair that that's how a lot of Bills fans think. But would I take Cam Newton for Josh Allen? I think I'd have to say, I'd have to say yes to that, but that is the bare minimum I would take. Because, and that might change depending on what you think of Cam Newton. I don't think of him as he's he is special in a way. He's more unique than he's special. I don't think he's a special quarterback. I think he had one special season and I don't want to say I think he's unique. That's what I would call him. And you know, Allen is that. But you've seen it out of Cam when the team around him isn't set up to be great. Like everything around him was great that Super Bowl year. When that doesn't happen, he's only so good. He'll have a bunch of losing seasons. He's had four losing seasons. Five, actually. And three winning seasons. He's had... How many years? Every year but two. He's had below a 60% completion percentage. He hasn't thrown for over 25 touchdowns. He's actually only thrown for over 25 touchdowns once. Remember yesterday, Steve Palazzolo said, like, I could see Allen having a year or two where he throws for 28 touchdowns. And I think maybe I thought of that and thought, 28 touchdowns? Like, what? what? That needs to be better. We need to be better than that. He needs to be consistently throwing 28 touchdowns. Cam Newton doesn't do that. Cam Newton throws 21, 19, 24, 18, 19, 22, 24. He had the 135 year mixed in there. But what I will say, Cam will give you a few rushing touchdowns, and that's you know, that's a bonus. That counts. Cam has 58 rushing touchdowns throughout his career. Can can Allen do that? Can Allen average you five, six rushing touchdowns a year? Because then, like I said, we're talking about a unique guy who is on the border of being like a legitimate elite franchise quarterback, but maybe not quite there. And I think I would take that. I, w- I would sign up for that today, but no less. No less. Because do I want to be... And it's funny you bring up Newton because it's the Panthers. It's always the team that we're compared to, right? Do I want to be the Carolina Panthers? Because they've been trying to be the Carolina Panthers, it seems. Do I want to be them, legitimately? Because I think I would just want to shoot for better than that. That's three losing seasons in the last five years. That's one amazing year, followed by 
Really a lot of mediocre sandwiched around it. And is that what I'm trying to be? I'm not trying to be, you know, one amazing year, which would be super fun, I admit it. But then the rest, you know, it's kind of a crapshoot whether I'm going to be good or not. I think the idea of having or of, of spending all the assets they spent to try to get so much better at the quarterback position is that year in and year out, you're in it. And that doesn't necessarily always happen with uh, Newton and the Panthers. Six and eight, six and eight, five, eight and one, seven and nine, six and ten. Those are all seasons on Cam Newton's resume as the Panthers starting quarterback win loss style. I don't really like to compare or judge a quarterback too much on his win loss record, but I think that in this case is representative of what he is as a quarterback. Like those are the years where not everything's perfect around him, and I. I like that the Bills have made everything around Allen a lot better, and I hope everything's perfect around Allen, obviously, because they would be, even if Allen's not amazing, they'd be one of the better teams in the league. But ultimately, I want Allen to be good enough where everything doesn't have to be perfect around him. 803 is the phone number. Thanks for the call. We'll get to Marcel Louis-Jacques. Break a little early here. We'll get to that after the break. So the nightcap with Jody Biasi here on WGR. All right, welcome back to the Nightcap. Joe DiBiase here on WGR. Got some fantasy talk on the way, some Sabres. A little preseason proposal for you. Before that, though, I want to uh, kind of wrap our discussion on the Bills tonight and uh, kind of, you know, looking forward to Friday night's game against Detroit, the third preseason game. The all-important, most important preseason game, right? The third one. Um, it's most important by comparison, but... You know, teams are catching on. The Colts, they're not even playing anybody for good reason. They're looking at their starting quarterback on the bench right now. Like, why do we need to risk anybody else? We already are going to be shorthanded. We don't need to be more. Who cares? It's a preseason game. We're not. It will not affect how good you're going to be this season. If Luck's healthy week one, I have the Colts in the Super Bowl. For me, that has no impact. What Their preseason schedule and results have no impact on uh, that for me. So, little Bills talk here. Marcel Louis-Jacques, the new uh, ESPN Bills reporter, um, who's been on our station a bunch of times in the past couple of weeks. is Some really good content um, from him. And he joined uh, Steve Tasker and uh, John Murphy earlier today, so we'll play a little of that here. Uh, some, some thoughts on what's been happening with the Bills, the offensive line, the tight end battle, by the way, which is heating up a little bit now that people are getting healthy again. That and more with Marcel Louis-Jacques earlier today on One Bills Live. Joining us right now, also on the edge of his seat, happy to talk to uh, the ESPN NFL Nation reporter for the Buffalo Bills. We talked to him in training camp. Happy to have him back, Marcel Louis-Jacques. Hello, Marcel. Thanks for coming by. Hey, thanks for having me, as always, man. Love to be in the studio with y'all. We appreciate yeah. you coming in. We're glad you're here. We, you've been around, in and around training camp. We had John during training camp as well, and <laughs> at the time we had John, I think Mitch Morse was injured. He still is. <laughs> what are your thoughts on the offensive line uh, coming into this game? Are you... Thumbs up, thumbs down, or kind of somewhere in the middle? Well, I think there was a – they were in a position of concern a couple of weeks ago when they're seemingly just dropping like flies. You know, Long's missing time. Feliciano is missing time. Morris is out. Uh, Waddle goes on IR. And Secchi is in and out of practice. But I think they're finally starting to find some, some help and some continuity. Uh, Mitch Morris entering stage five of concussion protocol is an excellent sign. I mean – if you're a Bills fan, that's what you've been more or less waiting for for the past two, three weeks. But um, 
I, I think that the panic button, you can slowly start to back away from it a little mm -hmm. bit. They're, they're looking like that top five is going to be ready for week one at New York Jets or at the Jets. Um, it looks like they've got some depth in Feliciano and they've got some depth in Long. Uh, still trying to really cement who that swing tackle is going to be. But offensive line problems are not as dire as they were a few weeks who ago. Who is your top five? My top five. In order, starting to left tackle, we yeah. got Deion Dawkins, Quinn Spain, Mitch Morse, Cody Ford, Ty Insecki. That's I think. my top five. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's what, they, that's what they're going to run with when everybody is healthy and ready you know, and active, I, I could imagine. That's just the most talented lineman that you have on roster right now. See, and that includes Ford at guard, not tackle. Right, that's Great. the thing. Inseki's a better tackle than Feliciano or long hard guard, right? Because that's a, the idea, right? Yeah, and, and Ford is just a better guard than he is tackle. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, he's that position flexibility sure. is so key for him. And that was, such a, that, that was such a plus for him entering the draft. That's why a lot of people pegged him as a first-round pick. But I think his strength right now is – at right guard instead of tackle, but um, that's not to say he can't play it. Right, hey, Marcel. One thing, and it's it's a bit of a you know blue sky rose colored glasses thing that we've heard from McDermott now for about a week, but it's it's correct. They have developed some versatility by virtue of these injuries they've had. Do you agree? They do, and it's just the NFL is a league of opportunity here, and injuries happen all the time. And that's when you're going to see guys step up into positions that they might not be comfortable with, they might not be accustomed to, but that's how you learn. I, I'm a firm believer that the best way to learn is through immersion. So force guys into the first team, force guys at tackle, force guys at center who have right. never played center before in, in Ryan Bates, and let them learn and let them react to adversity because – it's not going to be sunshine and rainbows come Sundays. So, yeah, okay, before the third preseason games and you're sitting here and you think, you've seen all these offensive line, you know, moves and switches and adapts, ad adjustments and adaptations, have they done enough? Have they got enough guys? Uh, I think you can never have enough offensive <laughs> linemen. That's the uh, – I mean, the physicality that comes with the position, uh, injuries are just going to be more common there on the line. But I think it's a strong enough – top five, especially compared to what last season's featured. Um, I think uh, the, the flexibility and depth that Long and Feliciano add uh, is promising. I think getting McDermott back would be promising, Teller as well. Um, so I, time will tell. Time will tell. But for right now, I, I think, like I said before, we can start to, you know, take our hands away from that, from that big red button on the desk that says panic on it and uh, look forward to you know, pretty healthy week one. Last right. offensive line question I have for you, Marcel, is what about cohesion? What about communication up front? They're never going to get a chance to do that when it doesn't count. Yeah, and I thought it was interesting that McDermott said today, um, you know, Morse has been around the league long enough that preseason's important, but you would think, okay, it's not the end of the world if he doesn't get into a game, uh, these first four, these four preseason games. But McDermott said, no, he needs the reps just like, he himself needed reps, that adjusting to a new scheme, a new team, uh, new guys on either side of you, that, that takes time. You don't want to have to learn that on the fly, especially during a, what we'll call it, five, six-game stretch to start the season where you can get off to an excellent start if you're Buffalo. I mean, you can set the tone for the entire year. You can't afford to lose games because of a lack of cohesion on the offensive line. And so I, I see the importance in that. I still wouldn't expect – Morse to to get in a to get any preseason action beyond maybe one 
single series, if that even, though. It's just the risk kind of outweighs the reward. What do you think about the Josh Allen, the preseason he's put together? I mean, this is, a de- this is an offense that really, you know, in Carolina they didn't have Luke Kuechly on the other side of the football. They and Nobody's playing their starters. Uh, the Bills are getting some reps with Josh Allen, some ones, and finally did that in Carolina and had a good week leading up to that during the practices. What What are your thoughts on Josh Allen's preseason? Is has success been too easy? I mean, it's really hard to fault a guy for doing what he's asked to do. And when you're not playing, when you're playing against a Carolina defense without Keekley, without Shaq Thompson, I mean, that's what you expect to do. And I think that's a positive sign in its own right that when you're facing against, when you're facing, we'll call it inferior, for lack of a better word, inferior competition, you have to be able to execute. And it, from what I think we all saw, he executed his game plan just like he needed to. He pushed the ball downfield when necessary. We saw the couple completions to to Tommy Sweeney. Uh, he took his checkdowns. We saw him just really force feed almost Cole Beasley. But uh, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. I I can't fault him for taking these checkdowns because I, it's just the safe option. It's the smart option. And his job, I think we talked about this last time I was on the show. His job is not to be the hero and, or the savior of of this team. The strength of the Buffalo Bills does not lie in Josh Allen's right arm, no matter how strong it is. All he needs to do is not mess up. You know, in year two, you're kind of a, you know, enhanced game manager here. They don't need him to go out and push the ball downfield in order to win games. They just need him to be efficient with the ball. They need him to score points when need be and let the defense do the rest. We're on the line with ESPN's Marcel Louis-Jacques. He is the ESPN NFL Nation reporter covering the Buffalo Bills. And, Marcel, you wrote about uh, Bills' first-round draft pick, Ed Oliver. Um, about, you know, what do you think – how's he doing after two games? And how, more, maybe more importantly, how does he think he's doing after two games? Yeah, he's just got this – I spoke with Shaq Lawson, who said that uh, he's just got this, this confidence about him that's not normal for a first-year player. Not cocky, is he? It's not, and it's not cocky. And I think that yeah. was uh, – that was something I really wanted to focus on in the in the article that, you know, this isn't some sort of rookie bravado where you're a first rounder and you need to show that, you know, uh, I'm big and bad. I'm worth the I'm worth the 10 million dollar a year. He just wants to he's very aware of what he can do when he's on the field. And uh, I, I think that that shows and that's shown in the first in the first two games. I love the fact that in, in the face of Cam Newton's you know, constant chatter last week in practice. Ed Oliver, the most he could do is just glare at him, stare him down. I love that. Yeah, that <laughs> I must have watched that video yeah. 60 times, and I'm not going to lie to y'all here. But uh, that's just that's Cam being Cam. I want, first of all, we shouldn't look too far into it. I know I tweeted a lot about it, but it, it was not serious. That is, oh, yeah, that's, that's just Cam, how right? Cam, yep, yep, he yep, likes sure. to, you know, poke the bear a little bit. But uh, I, I think it, kind of spoke volumes as to who Oliver is as a person to, you know, turn back. I, I think we're saying it here. We, to turn back and, and face him just to hear Cam out, <laughs> give him a chance to say, hey, are you going to say anything directly to me? Or is this the, you know, the case where your mom's talking about you to her friends in the living room and <laughs> you just kind of have to wear it? Right. But uh, he didn't say anything, just kind of shook his head and went back to work. And that's, that's what Ed Oliver does. That's who he is. He's not about that trash talk when it comes to opponents. He might jaw back and forth with his teammates, as you know, Shaq said, and as Ed himself admit. But I mean, you see him right here. It's just like a, okay, I hear what you're saying. That's uh, <laughs> that's fine. You're, you're a little bigger than I thought, but you know, talk your stuff. I like that reaction. Yeah, 
Is there anything to be made, and, and not for nothing, but Ed Oliver, and this coaching staff has never given any of these players anything. They, when they earn it, they get it. Ed Oliver went from, from being a two to a one really fast ahead of Jordan Phillips. And I, Jordan Phillips is a very good player. Does it say anything about what they does – what, what does it say about that? I mean, do you think he earned it, or do you think they were saying, okay, he's playing good enough, let's stick him in there? I think you've seen it, or we've seen it, ever since the pads went on, I think the third day – of training camp where he's just he's exactly what they drafted him to be he's a disruptor and that you know in the interior defensive line and I mean that's what they need they that was the the weak point of this defense was getting after the quarterback 26th and sacks that's not an elite trait for what should be an elite defense and so what they need him to do is exactly what he's doing wreak havoc force double teams, open things up a little bit for Jerry Hughes, for Trent Murphy and Shaq Lawson. And, uh, you know, this is the NFL. You're, you're not just going to be thrust into a lineup if you don't earn it, and especially with a guy like Sean McDermott. I, I don't think that it should be taken lightly that he's running with the ones this early in his career. Marcel, I mentioned to Steve an hour ago about the Buffalo defense, two preseason games in, how impressed I was with the depth they have developed. You know what I mean? They were number two defense last year. They were pretty good. But now they got backups who seem to play well. And, again, I know who they're going against, but I'm, I'm encouraged about uh, the way the backup defenders have played through two games. And, and this goes back to what I'm saying before, uh, what I said before about Josh Allen and, and not undermining his success, that you cannot – you, you can't knock a guy for doing what he's expected to do. You, you know, like if you're a four string guy and you're going against four stringers and you're still finding success, like that's a positive that we, it's hard to just, you know, write that off and say, Oh, it's a four string. He's a four stringer too. This is equal competition for him. And he's showing that he can excel. And when I'm saying that, I'm thinking specifically of, of Daryl Johnson, who's okay. he's just done nothing but make plays whenever he gets the opportunity. We saw a, we saw a sack and a deflection, in week one, I believe we saw another sack and forced in, fumble, and sack forced fumble, fumble in, yeah. in week two. And for a guy that, you know, a seventh round pick and Leslie Frazier shed a little light on that on that yesterday. This is a premium position. It's one of we'll call it four or five positions where, you know, people will trade up. They'll mortgage a future to go get an elite pass rusher. And so you don't see a lot of guy, a lot of high impact guys fall and slip through the cracks. Daryl Johnson might be one of them, and I, I think if he does pan out, especially with you know a little bit of uncertainty opposite of, of Jerry Hughes, I think this could be a really valuable steal for Buffalo. Uh, like I said, though, if he, if he pans out and the success translates to the regular season. One of the guys I wanted to ask you about, we started out talking about Josh Allen, and, and you're right, you can't get on the guy for doing what he's asked to do. Cole Beasley's been asked to get open underneath. Now they were playing, I, I would think Cole Beasley in the game against Carolina where he had five targets, five catches. We've all heard about it. And even Josh Allen is saying, you know, people are saying, well, it was too easy for him. Well, that's Cole Beasley's job, right? And yeah. talk, I mean, do you think Cole Beasley is going to be as big of effect throughout the season as he was in the Carolina game? I, I would expect him to be. Um... He's just – he's a mismatch. And, and Carolina often were uh, – they're trying to defend him with a linebacker. And that's just not going to work against a guy like Beasley, who is not trying to blow by you. He's trying to shake you free. And what I really loved, uh, he, had a, he had a completion against – I believe it was Jermaine Carter um, on, on one of those first two drives where he immediately breaks himself open. And as soon as he t can tell that he's got space, 
he angles that route upfield, and he wants to maximize as many yards as he can possibly get with every target. And uh, I, I think having that kind of safety net, that's like an incentive for Josh Allen to continue to adjust mentally, you know, his uh, – his habits, his 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 reads, his progressions, you know, that's an incentive to start looking at your checkdowns and start playing it safe. If you've got a guy who you know this guy's going to do whatever it takes to get six, seven yards anytime he touches the ball, then, yeah, here's the ball. All right, we'll hear a little more from Marcel Louis-Jacques after the break at the top of the hour. It's the nightcap with Jody Biasi. 803-0550 if you want to get him before we get back to him, though, here on WGR. Helping you unwind after a long day of work. I think he's kind of a boob. Can't really take the day off as a person. Can't go out there and be a moron. It doesn't work like that. The Nightcap. We're eating their food. On WGR Sports Radio 550. All right, welcome back to the Nightcap. Joe DiBiase here on WGR. We're going to get to a little hockey talk, a little fantasy talk in just a little bit. Want to put a wrap on our Bills discussion for the night, though, and our Bills talk for the night. And we'll continue on with uh, Marcel Louis-Jacques. Who, by the way, is the new guy at ESPN, if you're not familiar with him. Um, some good content he's putting out there on the Bills. Here is the uh, the remainder of his Talk with John Murphy and Steve Tasker earlier today on uh, One Bills Live right here on WGR. The Bills did not have that dimension in their passing game last year, and and now they seem to have it with Cole Beasley, and now they seem to want to use it, which is important too. And they don't, I don't think they want to take the deep pass out of the offense either, right? No, I've seen a lot of it in two preseason games, but no, and because I think that that deep ball is more of a situational tool. Than it then it should be a um, I guess of your offense, exactly yeah. it, it shouldn't <laughs> yeah. be the focal point of your right. it's one of the least efficient plays in football right. the, that's uh, that's like in, in basketball you know basing your offense around a half court shot like right. looks great that's but right. come on I thought you were gonna say three pointers teams do base it on three pointers now. yeah they do but not now. a half court shot but he's <laughs> yeah. right it's a half court shot it's basically what it is yeah it, exactly it, it's it's not as automatic as Steph makes a three pointer right. Uh, right. makes threes look. But uh, like I say, it, it's a tool, and that's why they add a guy like like John Brown who can stretch that field. Because when defenses start to suck in, you know, when when uh, Allen's hitting Beasley across the middle repeatedly, and you know, in in a perfect world for them, that run game is still, you know, it, it's still a force to be respected. It might not be dominant, but defenses would have to respect it. Safeties are going to start to creep up, and that's when you. Try to Who take deep? the top off. Is that? Can you foresee um, kind of the typical slot receiver that we've seen before? A guy like Cole Beasley who comes out with 110 catches and has 950 yards. You know what I'm saying? Uh, you know, uh, uh, an eight or nine yard per completion kind of thing, like clockwork, and that's kind of be his thing. It's not out of the completely out of the question. I think his his career high is 75 catches in a season, right. and um, that was in a. And that was in an offense that, by his words, didn't value him, didn't use him correctly. I, I think Buffalo's going to be pretty pass-heavy this season. It's not out of the question that he sees triple-digit targets. Right. Whether he hits that 1,000-yard plateau or whether he you know, even breaks that 100-catch barrier is yet to be seen. Is yet to be seen. That's, uh, those are very gaudy numbers to, to project right. without you know, this early in the, in the sure. process. But I think... Uh, he could end up being one of those guys whose value is underappreciated. One of those guys, like like how uh, I hate to compare 
you know, a, a proven pro to a, a college player, but right. kind of like how Hunter Renfro was at Clemson, who, you know, he's not putting up the crazy numbers, but he's consistently moving the chains. He's a consistent option. He's a reliable option. I, I think Cole Beasley's career catch percentage is somewhere around 75%. That's, uh, I, I mean, like I said, that's just reliable. Talking with Bills reporter uh, Marcel Louis Jacques of ESPN. Um, I've been asking this question or a version of this question since day two of the draft back in April. Do you have any sense of where they're going with the running back group? And not just this Friday, but uh, as they approach cutdown day and the start of the regular season. What do you think? Uh, I think the top three is pretty solidified. I, I think McCoy Gore and, and Singletary are are locks. Like you can you keep can quote all three. Me. Keep all three. You can you can quote me on that if you use want. all three. I think you use all three. I how, think. How do you do that? LaShawn gets the first, will probably get the first crack. Um, I think he and Gore will more or less split carries doing the same role. But uh, Devin Singletary is kind of his own, in his own category. They're using him like Tariq Cohen, like a Darren Sproles. Like I think LA uses Austin Eckler as well as uh, almost a hybrid slot receiver and running back. You're going to see him in motion a lot. You're going to see him uh, running wheel routes. You're going to see him taking jet sweeps. And uh, I think he he can be a very valuable gadget player. I don't know if he's a three down back. I don't know if he's a feature back, but you don't really have to be in order. You don't have to be in today's NFL. Like you can be a very valuable and productive running back in that exact role. And if he grows in that, then he's somebody to definitely watch. Uh, obviously after that, that's when it gets, after those three, it gets a little, it's a little hairy. Right. Um, you know, obviously they signed TJ Yeldon. He's a, you know, he's a proven NFL running back. He's, yep. he's proven he can come in in case of injury and be productive. But his lack of experience on special teams, I think, might hurt him here. Um, in that case, I, I would put probably Sonoris Perry over him. Um, I like what I've seen out of Marcus Murphy as well as a right. runner. I think he's lightning quick. I think he hits his holes very hard. Um, he, just like Beasley, he tries to maximize how much yard, how many yards he gets every time he touches the ball. It's just that his skill set may be a little bit redundant with right. Devin Singletary in that top three. Unless he can do all of that and play special teams as well. and Because you're right, the top three guys are going to get 95% of the carries, maybe, and DeMarco gets one carry for the season, you know, as, <laughs> at a fullback. You know, it, it, yeah. um, and I think, do you think they're just going to, and here's why I think it's going to go, LaShawn and Frank Gore are going to, whoever's having the good bets day gets on the field. And they'll just they'll give LaShawn the first crack, and if he keeps going well, Frank will spell him and then come off the field, and LaShawn's right back out there. And just the opposite if it's one of those days where Frank Gore has to get the tough yards after contact. I agree. I think LaShawn is still, even at this stage of his career, I think he's more of a home run hitter than, than Frank Gore. Um, Gore's, he's looked, I mean, as spry as ever for, uh, for how long he's been in the league. He doesn't look like he's lost a whole lot. But I think he's a powerful between-the-tackles runner. He's a consistent – you know what you're going to get with him. And uh, you need to chew clock. You need to eat some yards up. Then you're going you're gonna to hammer it away with mm -hmm. Frank Gore. And, um, but, yeah, I think that, that makes sense. The hot hand approach right, makes sense. Exactly. That's, that's usually how it goes when you have a committee, and this is, this is looking a lot like a committee. A right. week from tomorrow, preseason game number four could be Christian Wade Day here in Orchard Park, right? <laughs> I mean, why not play him in the fourth preseason? I, yeah, why not? Yeah. Uh, I think he'll probably get a little more – he might get a little more action, action now in, in game three. But uh, he's been, I mean, just electric anytime he touches yeah. the ball. Uh, but, my Lord, <laughs> we need to calm down yeah, yeah. The, uh, the, yeah. the way to the 53 
talk. I, I think he's um, – it's easy to get wrapped up in the shiny new thing. And right now, Christian Wade is the shiny new the new toy on this yeah. offense. But let's be very realistic here. He has – he's made two plays. And he's only gotten the ball four times. Uh, I, I haven't been doing this NFL thing a long time, but I, I learned quickly. And one thing I've learned is that the people who are around the team every day usually know more than – the fans, then even the media, they're mm-hmm. seeing them practice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the people who make the decisions here have decided Christian Wade's the last running back to touch the ball these past two games. Right. There's probably a reason for that. He, he is every bit a, a high-caliber athlete. I think he's an NFL-caliber athlete, no doubt. But you see a couple time, you've seen a couple times where his rugby instincts kick in before his football instincts kick in. Uh, you saw it in that opening handoff. I mean, it, rugby Twitter, correct me if I'm wrong, but he took uh, the handoff wrong. Yeah, he took it like he's getting a, he's taking a ball, he's taking a rugby ball. I don't know what the rugby ball is called. That's not why they pay me. But uh, <laughs> right. he took he took it like he's he's playing rugby. You saw it again on the on I believe the play that we just we just watched, where he doesn't follow his lead blockers. I. I'm, to my understanding that you don't do that you in can't rugby. do that yeah. in rugby you can't block for a guy in rugby the ball has to be the first thing down the field so it's opposite for him exactly and it showed and so while that instinct to you know see space hit space is, is clearly there with him you see him they're losing points because or he's not scoring because he runs away from his blockers and toward the other team and uh they're, they're little things and we're nitpicking here for a guy who's got you know 100 plus yards on just a handful of touches but they, those football instincts need to be second nature to him. This isn't rugby anymore. And to put him on the 53-man roster, that means you expect him to make an impact in a real game that really counts in the season. And I don't think he's quite ready to do that yet. I think at least a year or a little bit of time on that practice squad to you know, build those instincts and make that second nature, I think that's going to be very valuable for a guy like him. Bill said face backup quarterbacks their first two preseason games. It'll be different this Friday night, right, going against the ones uh, for the Detroit Lions? Uh, I mean, it might. It might. We might see Matt Stafford. I don't believe Detroit has played him to this point. Right. And Matt Patricia is a disciple of the Bill Belichick, you know, <laughs> pregame mouth. routine. So yeah. I don't think we'll find out until, you know, darn near game time. But uh, I think it would be valuable because we already know – we know what this defense can do against backup quarterbacks. They, you know, bullied Jacoby Brissett. They made Kyle Allen, you know, look like an undrafted rookie still. And uh, I, I think you're not seeing you're, – you're, I know it's a theme of the show, but we're seeing them do what we expect them to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, it would be, I think, comforting for, for fans, for staff, for the players themselves to go up against a full – group to go up against a full starting group yeah for a couple of series it's hard for a a team like carolina to take four all pros off the field and look like themselves it is because those guys are their identity keekley cam newton um christian mccaffrey and greg olson i mean those are four all pro players and that changes the entire complexion of their offense and defense when they're off it does Uh, ron rivera came out and said that you know they the bills took advantage of a vanilla game pen which uh I, i mean comes off as a little petty but in all reality, that was not – it was almost like they didn't play the Panthers. If McCaffrey and Cam are not on that offense and Keekley's not quarterback in the defense, you, you basically didn't play the Panthers. Right. Right. But they did succeed and do, once again, what you would expect them to do against a group of reserves. And I think that is better – this might be a glass-half-full approach, but that is way better than the alternative of <laughs> failing to make an impact against a team without Keekley and Cam. You mentioned Matt Patricia. Have you guys seen him yet this summer? You know, you see what he's doing? 
So he had, earlier this summer, he had, um, what's the surgery on the back of your leg down here? Achilles. Achilles tendon repaired, and he's got a cart, and he rides out the midfield. They've got him set up on a platform right at the 50-yard line behind the benches. He's got four Gatorade huge jugs in front of him to protect him, and that's where he coaches the game from, the head coach. He, he, I saw him, I was watching the Houston game last night. He threw, he threw a challenge flag. He had to throw it about 20 yards onto the field. He, he, he's, not, he's not healthy. He rides around the cart and he sits. I don't know if he'll do it this uh, Friday night, but he could not. He didn't want to get hit, obviously, and he has to sit for the entire game. It's pretty amazing. It's kind of wow. interesting. <laughs> it's, it's interesting trend of, of uh, coach injuries. I think uh, Lafleur up in Green Bay, then he tears ACL or Did something he? like that. Oh my I didn't gosh! Know that. I think he had knee surgery. There's some sort of we'd have something to look on. it up. But uh, yeah, look for that on Friday, Marcel. This is great. Yeah. Thank you again Thanks, for joining Marcel. us. We appreciate it. I appreciate it anytime, y'all. There he is, Marcel Louis Jacques. With Murph and Tasker earlier today. So, little football here, and then we'll get to some hockey because we got a Jake Gardner thing that's going on. And Elliot Friedman mentioned the Sabres uh, when talking about Jake Gardner on a radio station in Canada. So, whenever that happens, it's a nice excuse for me to talk some hockey. Before that, though, a couple of ideas I had for the preseason and a couple of things I would think either make it more interesting or would help you get rid of it. First, though, there is a report that the NFL is kind of is considering. They already had the one proposal a couple uh, about a month ago that they would implement an 18-game regular season schedule, but a 16-game player limit, and that two preseason games would be eliminated. I like that idea. It doesn't sound like that's going to get much traction, and probably will not happen. But I like where they're going here. They're trying to th- come up with creative ideas to. You know, because you know they're not going to eliminate the games altogether because of the revenue and blah, 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 blah. But there's other ways that they can do it. That they can keep those games alive while making them mean something. And one way would be to translate those games into or transfer those games into regular season games. Or, like maybe what they're trying to do here, expand the playoffs. Add another team into the playoffs. You add a playoff game. There's your added revenue. There's your added money that you're all looking for. But we don't have to have four preseason games, which is just absolutely absurd. You don't need that many. We had Matt Barkley today talking about how even the players, like they, they think, you know, coaches generally have stuff figured out by the time they get to uh, by the time they get to the fourth preseason game. Here was Barkley earlier today on that. I don't think so. I never saw it that way. I saw it as the whole body of work from OTAs and camp. It all added up to whether you had it or not. I think at that point, and especially by the fourth game, I think a lot of decisions have already been made. Not that you can't sway anyone at that point, but for the most part, at that point, coaches and players have seen what you're capable of. And so there's a lot of guys still on the fringe. I think especially with how much talent that we have, these last two games are going to be big. But from my perspective as a quarterback, every game was important to me, and I never elevated one more than the other. So if the players don't really think that the third preseason game is different than the fourth, but they also think, like Barkley does there, that most of the decisions are made up, then what are we doing? And a added playoff game obviously would be, I think, a cool idea. Um, so if that happens, cool. Otherwise, if you're going to keep the preseason, can we at least have some fun with it? Can we at least have some creativity along with it? Can we do some stuff that the NBA is – like at least the NBA hasn't done this yet, but they're trying they're trying to make things more creative. They're trying to think make, make things more fun with like in-season tournaments or whatnot and what that might be worth, like what you would get out of that tournament. And why don't you do that with the preseason? It's the perfect area to do something like this. 
Four preseason games. All right, you want to keep them? Well, guess what? Let's do this. Four preseason games. If you go four and one, we're going to give you an extra third round pick, like a compensatory pick. We're going to give you an extra compensatory pick for going four and oh in the preseason or even having a winning record going three and one. Now, that'd be something to play for, right? It's not a lot to play for, but it's something. It's a reason to root for it, for the result. It's a reason to try. It's a reason for coaches to treat the game like an actual game. Something. It doesn't have to be that, but make it meaningful in some way if it's not, if you're going to have to keep it around. Because the way that the preseason exists right now, like next week, we're, I think we're already getting a little of this. Next week is going to be. Ugh, why does this exist? Why are we here? Why are we doing this? And I think a lot of people are echoing that sentiment. And it's and it's bleeding into the league. Coaches. Frank Reich not playing starters in the third preseason game. The all-important third preseason game. The dress rehearsal. No, they're like, we don't need it. Matt Nagy and the uh, Chicago Bears, last year and this year, does not play starters in the preseason. Why? I think he gets. At the end of the day... Anything you might gain in terms of reps and all of that is not worth risk the risk of injury. The thing about Trubisky, I don't think he's all that great, but you're throwing him out there in a preseason game. How much are the reps worth? If he gets injured, your season is essentially over. All the expectations, all that you're trying to be if you're the Bears this year, I would expect they're trying to make another jump and be like a real Super Bowl contender. You lose your quarterback, that's over. You might still think, oh, I can make me make the playoffs or I can be competitive or whatever. But you're not you're not gonna be what you want to be, which is a Super Bowl contender. And that's at risk because of reps. Really? And more and more coaches are gonna start to understand that, which means more and more starters are gonna stop playing in the preseason. So if you already thought the preseason was a drag, if you already thought it was worthless, well think about it now. If starters played 15 to 20 percent of the preseason over the last 25 years, I don't I don't know if that number is right, but it just seems like it's right. So I'm just going to throw it out there. 15 to 20 percent. If that number were to go down to five percent around the league, <laughs> like if you thought the preseason was already worthless, that's going to get worse because coaches are getting smarter. Coaches are getting more progressive. Coaches are realizing that the risk is not worth the gain in this situation. Maybe. Just maybe, if you made it mean a little something, they might take it a little more seriously. Or, you just find a way to get rid of the games. That's the logical thing to do. And you do you need more than one or two? I don't know if you need two. But that seems to be the number you'd want to go to. And for whatever reason, they just can't find a way to do it. How long does it take for you to understand that you got to do it? The league is not arrived at that conclusion and it sucks it sucks that we've got to wait an extra week for real games for these make-believe preseason games that really don't mean anything I'm mostly talking about the fourth preseason game but basically the whole preseason game as a whole all right a little discussion here on on fantasy football and what was discussed earlier on the afternoon show there was a lot of people calling in about uh, you know, the vetoing system in your league and whether you should allow trades to be vetoed. And I really think it's just a no-brainer. You can't have it. There's just no way. There's no reason to have it. Unless 
you don't trust who your commissioner is. And if that's the case, then you need a new commissioner. That's your problem, not your system. Because we had a lot of people telling stories today earlier on the air of, oh, I made this trade for this trade, but everyone voted against it because they thought it was unfair. Unfair is not really what the question should ever be if you're thinking about should a trade be vetoed in the Fantasy League. It should be, was there foul play? Was there collusion? Was there anything like that? Was there money being exchanged? Was there a split of a purse being exchanged? Those situations warrant a trade being vetoed, but in those situations, you should not need a majority to do it because if that becomes available knowledge, it's a no-brainer. And if it's a no-brainer, you only need one person to make that decision, and that would be your commissioner. So I would say eliminate all vetoes in any fantasy league ever. It doesn't... It just is not worth it. It's not worth the headache, and it doesn't even make any sense, logically. Um, I've been in plenty of situations where you rip off a player, another person like that, and everyone around the league goes, oh, you got to be kidding me. This guy made that trade. That happens in real sports. And there's no system to say, all right, this trade went, the Sabres traded for Jeff Skinner. And everyone around the league thinks the Hurricanes got, got gypped on it, got screwed over on it. Or got beat on the trade, I should say. So they're going to say, oh, this trade isn't really that fair, so we're going to veto it. Because, what, the Canucks don't like it? You shouldn't be in charge. You shouldn't be able to be in control of your team. Or you'll, you'll, you'll suffer the consequences on your, on your own. If you make a dumb trade, you deserve to suffer the consequences. Not get bailed out by other people in your league that don't really have any reason to, to not want it to happen. So, scrap vetoes. It's an easy one. 8030550 is the phone number. It's the nightcap with Jody Biasi. I'm going to switch a little to hockey when we come back. Ristolainen, Jake Gardner, the Sabres, what's going on with the blue line? Is anything going to happen? And uh, the status of the RFA market, which is basically the dam that is that is holding up all of this movement around the league, it seems. It's the nightcap with Jody Biasi. Thanks for listening here on WGR. Um, I, I think there's, you know, I, I mean, I've heard the rumors that uh, that uh, there's he's waiting for a team to make a move. Um, I, I do think there's some interest in him. I think Arizona's had interest in him, and I, and I do wonder about Buffalo. Like, if they do make the rest of Lion move, I wonder if that's a possibility. I just don't know if it's going to be as big as he hoped for it to be. I, there is Elliot Friedman of Sportsnet talking to Jake Gardner, UFA defenseman, who is still on the market. There was a rumor that he mentioned it there um, on Gardner a little while ago in the offseason that basically said that he's got a wink-wink deal with a team and he's waiting for them to clear cap space and or waiting for other stuff to happen before he can officially sign. And that could be Buffalo. That could be because we know that I think we pretty much know that they are trying to trade Ristolainen and or he's on the market for, for sure. And if that happens, that would further, like if that happens, if Ristolainen goes out the door and Gardner comes in. Now, I don't love the player. I like the player. And at this point in the offseason, I'd have to think he's not gonna he's not getting the money that he was originally hoping to get. Otherwise, he would have signed already. And if that's the case then I might like the value a little better than I thought. If I had to pay six and a half, seven million dollars for this guy, I don't think I'm on board. But you know, a little less. Like if I can get him at five and a half, 
five. I'm okay with that. I think he's about that level of good. He's he's more of the the puck mover than Ristolainen is. He's more modern than Ristolainen is in terms of his style of defense. And I think he would fit into what the Sabres have been trying to do this offseason, which is make over their blue line in that direction. Um, he would kind of complete that. Almost. Like, you would need, I think, still to know that Bogosian, Scandella, and those guys that are eating up big cap numbers are not here at the beginning of the year. But suddenly, if you can pull that off and your blue line's looking like Darlene and Colin Miller and Montour and Gardner and Yoki Haru and Pilot, like, now that is a full blue line filled with good passing defensemen. And they have had none of that, almost none of that, for the last 10 years. It's been part of the reason they have the longest playoff drought in the league. And Gardner, while like I said, I don't love the player, he is certainly somewhat good, and I think he would certainly contribute to what the Sabres are trying to accomplish this offseason. So I like the idea, and I actually uh, I like the idea a lot. Now, that's dependent on Aristolainen trade getting done. And the report on Marner yesterday was that he's talking with a team in Switzerland. He might go to Leafs camp without a contract, but it doesn't sound like they're any closer on a contract. This is trending in the direction of the Willie Nylander situation last year where he was in a contract negotiation all offseason with the Leafs. Season starts, he's not there, and he sits out until December. What happened last year also Nylander got a big contract, and because he signed it in December, the Leafs had to suffer a $10 million cap hit for last year. This year, they can't do that same thing. They can't. Marner can't go down the the same path Nylander did, because if they have to do a contract like that somewhere in the middle of the season, and he signs there, I just don't know if they can make that cap work. I don't know if they can make the cap work to begin with. So, maybe Toronto's got to do some stuff, Tampa's got to do some stuff, Calgary's got to do some stuff, we know Winnipeg's got to do some stuff, and that's the team we talk about with Ristolainen the most. It, the market does not set up for Ristolainen trade right now. That should be obvious because nothing's happened. Unless Edmonton comes flying out of nowhere and offers you Nugent Hopkins, which I don't think that's on the table or else that would have been done already. Should have been done already. So, what to expect? I'll be honest, if nothing else happens on the RFA market, until that happens, I would be stunned if you get a Ristolainen trade. The market's got to move in some way. And where is that going to come? Someone's got to deviate from the current path. Someone's got to sign before Marner does. He can't be the domino that knocks everything else over. One of the other dominoes behind him is going to have to fall first. That could be Line. That could be Connor. That could be Matthew Kachuk. I think maybe Winnipeg would be the team that does cave first. Because their team, they're good, but how good are they? They are they got a young core of players that is led, like their their two best young players are the two that they need to sign, Line A and Connor. Two of their best players. I like Shifley more than both of them, actually. But they're right there. What does that team look like if those two are not on the ice? They're still a good team, but that might hold them back from being a truly great team. That might be the team that has the most to lose by not having their RFAs go to the market. Toronto, they cannot have Marner. They're still a playoff team. Tampa, they cannot have Point. They're still a playoff team. Maybe, just maybe, Winnipeg is that team that 
cracks and says, all right, we're not waiting for Marner. Maybe they wouldn't be the ones that cracks. Maybe it would be the players like Line and Connor. They say, all right, we're not waiting anymore. We're signing. I'm not going to miss any part of the season. Let's get it done. And then maybe that could be what bursts the dam and everything happens, and Marner's just kind of off on his own to the side, and we're waiting for that to happen, and maybe it never ultimately does. So that's my little spiel on the rest of the line and uh, status report and uh, where, where we stand with that. Um, the Gardner idea, like Elliot Friedman says there, I would think the Sabres would be interested in that. I wouldn't be surprised if they are the team that has a wink-wink deal uh, with Jake Gardner. 8030550 is the phone number if you got any thoughts on that. We're going to I want to hear we're going to hear some powerful stuff after the break though. Steve Seftel, former pro hockey player, he wrote a book uh kind of on his struggles with uh with mental health and he joined Chopin the Bulldog earlier today. It was a really good interview. We're going to play some of that back after the break. It's the Nightcap with Jody Biasi. Thanks for listening here on on WGR. All right, last call on the nightcap. Jody Biasi here on WGR. We're going to spend last call playing back uh, something a really good interview, I thought, from earlier today on the station. Uh, if you're not familiar with Steve Seftel, he wrote a book um, that you can find on Amazon. You can find it on our Twitter at WGR550.com. And, uh, you know, it's it's about really he's talking about his, his mental health and some of the struggles that a lot of players go through that's kind of not talked about a whole lot. Like Dan Carcillo comes to mind for this. If you follow him on social media, he's been a big uh, proponent of kind of bringing light to mental illness in uh, in hockey like this. And, uh, you know, Steve Montador obviously passed away a few years back. That's part of this whole conversation, the players that we've lost over the years. And Steve Seftel, I thought, here it is. I'll just play it right here. He was really good earlier today right here with uh, Chopin the Bulldog. We're pleased to have Steve Seftel on the West Her Hotline. Steve is a former professional hockey player who has written a book about hockey and more called Shattered Ice. Steve, Mike, and Chris here. Nice to talk to you. Nice to talk to you as well. It's uh, my pleasure to be a guest on your show. I'm really looking forward to it. Thank you. So um, your book is about your career and also mental illness and the struggles within uh, within your career and life. Um, elaborate, if you would, Steve. Tell us uh, tell us your story. Well, like it's important to know, Mike, that um, I wasn't diagnosed with a mental illness until two years ago when I had a complete what I would call mental breakdown and uh, was in a condition where I couldn't get out of bed and I didn't want to get out of bed and. Uh, I became physically ill from the mental illness. But as far as my hockey career goes, the first time I was aware of this was about age 16. It was the first time I had my first panic attack. And that one happened when I was in Czechoslovakia playing my midget Kitchener green shirts on a trip we had over there, and I was stuck in an elevator. Um, That was the first time I was aware of it. And uh, I played three years in the Ontario Hockey League for the then Kingston Canadians. I uh, suffered somewhat through those years, but I didn't really understand it because it was not, mental health wasn't something we talked about. And those uh, feelings followed me into my pro career, drafted by the Washington Capitals, second round, uh, 40th overall in 1986. And then I did play for the Capitals in the 90-91 season, but I was in the organization for seven years, and I left about 1993. Do you feel like you left a lot 
on the table with your career because of the the, the mental condition you were in during you know, all the, all that time? I mean, you, you obviously achieved enough to be the 40th pick in the draft. Um, so you, it's not like you were under the radar or anything, but do you feel like it, it, it really held you back? Do you think your career would have been different if you had received some kind of assistance or treatment in those years, Steve? I do, and uh, it's unfortunate that back then we didn't talk about it. I mean, the mentality then was be a warrior. Um, you know, you pay the price. You do all the things you have to do to, to uh, be a hockey player. It's basically whatever it takes. And talking about how you felt mentally was not part of that playbook. And it was a – so when I think started to spiral for me out of control was really uh, in early of 1992 – uh, after my after the Capitals training camp, and I was coming back from my second ACL tear, and that was really a, a devastating blow. And, and we never something else we don't take into consideration is the trauma players suffer from injuries. That, but uh, it was again not part of the mentality or the makeup of the time. And it's just you dealt with those things on your own internally, and as a result, I think it does it does have a cumulative effect, and definitely uh, affected me leaving quicker than maybe I should have. Did you ever, how, how close did you ever get to talking to someone, confiding in someone, be it a teammate, a trainer, a coach, um, a family member, whatever, like during during this whole time, I would say from the time it first cropped up, you said while you were playing juniors in, in Czechoslovakia, all the way through to your pro career. Did you ever get right to the edge of actually talking to someone about, hey, something isn't right with me. I want to talk about it. I did not. And um, I'll be honest with you, it was two years ago. Uh, it was the first time I ever discussed it uh, openly with anyone other than my wife. But back in those days, I didn't discuss it at all and never even thought about it. But two years ago, um, I was asked to watch Michael Landsberg, and he, he has some really good videos uh, about mental illness. I'm, that is truthfully the first time I ever heard anyone openly discuss it, and it actually opened the gate for me to starting to go down the road where I would talk about it with family and friends. With Steve Seftel, author of the book Shattered Ice, former professional hockey player. So I think I would expect, Steve, most players from your playing days to say the same thing about how players were not open about like their feelings to put it that way. What I don't know is, well, okay, I'll go further. I think, I, I know I would also expect to hear my wife and my close friends say, no, it's totally okay. You should. You know, I think people around me would be like that, supportive and open and encouraging like that. Um, what I don't know is what it would be like in sports right now or in hockey right now. Bulldog might <laughs> because <laughs> his son is playing, you know, at, close to playing at the junior level with uh, the Greyhounds and made that team and now is going to be playing it in high school. And, um, like, I, where, where do you think, if, if you know, like, as you've talked to people, Steve, you must know a lot of people in the game still. Doug McLean wrote the forward for this book, even. How, how far have we come? I think you know, I compare it to turning an ocean liner around. So it takes a hmm. long time to turn that ship around, and I think it's just begun. So we're slowly changing the direction of the ship. There's still a lot of work to do. I think, uh, from I know from the Ontario Hockey League, there is a a preparation course or a, an awareness, mental health awareness course that the players are taking now at, at training camp. But um, there's still a lot of work to do, without question. And we can tie this into concussions as well. Um, 
dealing with the head, yeah. whether it's concussions, mental illness, it's the brain and the head has been ignored for far too long, and it's it's starting to change, but there's still a long way to go. Yeah, I feel like there's there's a lot of um, there's a lot of, of former players that have been, I think, pretty vocal. Daniel Carcillo comes to mind. I don't know if you're familiar with the work he's done. Um, it, a lot of it's just on Twitter, raising awareness uh, about head injuries. Um, and I'm thinking about even national corporate initiatives like Bell Let's Talk. Uh, I think is something that happens once a year within in, in the hockey community. But at least on Twitter, it's like everybody I follow that's affiliated with hockey in any way is in on let's talk about mental health. So I think there is I, – I, I feel like it's earnest and well-meaning, like how far it's getting uh, in these early stages, like you're referring to this ocean liner. I mean, I, I can't say, but I, I think an effort's being made. I would agree with that, and uh, I think Bell Let's Talk is, is also a great initiative. And let's, I hope at one point we get to this, uh, a day where it's not just a, a one-day event in the course of the calendar year, that it's something yeah. the players are comfortable talking about whenever they need the support or the help from their coaches and the teams, and that it's just not something we kind of promote once a year. And, but, I mean, it's a starting point, which is a good thing. And I, right. I know from my own situation, my year – Something that hit me hard was Joe Murphy was the first overall pick of my draft year by the Detroit Red Wings. Yeah. I know he's suffering. Well, I shouldn't say he, I know he's going through some of his own personal struggles. And, you know, it just shows you that it, it, there's a lot of high-functioning people who still suffer from mental illness. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. yeah if people don't, aren't familiar with Murphy's story, he's been homeless um, a lot of former teammates and players tried to reach out and help him, and I think did for a while. Uh, but then he 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 walked away from that, and he's had numerous concussions uh, in his career. And uh, I, I think he's a he's a real he might be like the headliner story for this sort of conversation right now because first overall pick, very good career, and it you know his personal life once he stopped playing hockey just unraveled and he stopped playing hockey in part because of the number of head injuries he had. Absolutely. And I think, you know, you look at Joe, he had a number of concussions, but something else we have to look at, as you said, that's a severe case, but there's also people out there struggling who sometimes they're just in a rough patch and they're going through some depression and anxiety and they think there's no alternative and no way out. And we have to, you know, we got to look at everybody and just, give the opportunity to people to seek out to help and listen to them when uh, they need someone to talk yeah. to. Yeah. How, how, when you were coming up in juniors and, and it started to look like maybe this was uh, something you could really take to the max, like, you know, you're, you're going to get drafted, you could make the league, um, did that create a pressure internally that that was hard to manage like is that a is that a part of this story because mike referenced my son i think about that with him all the time because the farther you go the higher the stakes get right and it's set up it's almost like all i gotta do now is land the plane right like you've got this next spot set up for you and then this next spot and it's all going well just don't screw it up and i think that creates a lot of pressure i agree you're right um so I got drafted in June of 1986, went to the Capitals training camp in that September, played quite well. I got in two exhibition games. I have, a, as a matter of fact, I have a chapter in my book called Bork's Corner. I, my first exhibition game was uh, against the Boston Bruins at the Capitol Center, and Ray Bork was in the lineup, so that was an amazing thrill for me. <laughs> and uh, But 
right after that camp, as you were saying, the stakes getting higher, I signed a contract with the Capitals after returning to Kingston. And that's when I felt things did start to ramp up and I did feel more internal pressure to succeed game in and game out that I was always uh, auditioning. And as you said, you just got to land the plane and you are on this track and the pressure definitely built. And sometimes it's a self-inflicted pressure cooker, but it is, there's no outlets at the time and you just, you go down that road and it can be. We still have you, Steve? But it dropped off. Yeah, we lost him there, I think. Yeah. I was about to tell him that I think I saw him play. Oh, yeah? Yeah, with Miners? Baltimore. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. I've mentioned to Rob Ray a number of times that Rob scored an overtime goal for Rochester when I was going to their games mm-hmm. uh, in my college years, and he remembers it. And Barry Trotz was the Baltimore coach, and Steve would have been on that team. A lot of his book toward the end is – give him back? Okay. Steve, I was just saying, I think I saw you play for Baltimore. In Rochester? Yes, yes. Uh, because it just it came back to me when you were writing about Trotz toward the end and having some difficulty with him. And he um, he was the coach of that Baltimore team. I remembered that. And we've talked to Rob Ray about an overtime goal he scored against Baltimore in the playoffs. Is yes. That, is, is that a memory you have? Yes, it is. That was a playoff game. Uh, I think that year Doug McLean was our coach. Um, that oh. was a that was a dagger in that series, that overtime goal by Rob Ray. <laughs> yeah, that's 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 what I remember. Oh, Rob Ray with a dagger. I, I can't wait to that? talk to him about that. He, yeah, he, <laughs> I mean, he, like he doesn't bring it up every time he sees you. Um, but how about Trotz? Like what what I got from your book was that you know you might have looked up to him and then you struggled in terms of communication with him eventually. Well, one of the ch- when Barry Trotz when I first was drafted, Barry Trotz was a scout with the Capitals organization. And then uh, he was promoted to assistant coach in Baltimore under Rob Laird. And then uh, Mr. Poyle fired Rob Laird and Barry assumed the head coaching job. That, that was his first head coaching uh, opportunity with the, in the, with the Baltimore Skipjacks. So it, the, the uh, relationship changed because I knew him as a scout and then an assistant coach. And often assistant coaches are the one you bounce things off uh, as a player. And now he was the boss. And to approach him as the boss, was a little more challenging and mm-hmm. but I was going through my own personal struggles at the time and like we talked about I didn't know how to ask for help and uh, I probably didn't go about it the best way a chapter in my book I talk mm-hmm. about how I uh, didn't go to a golf, event, a golf all tournament to, yes. all things not to go to I skipped a golf <laughs> event right. and uh, I was he was very upset with me and that at least that started to some dialogue I think the reason I that event is I just wanted to talk to somebody in the organization about the way my career was headed and um, we so we did clear the air that way but um, I certainly at the time we talked about my playing but we did not talk about it what I was feeling inside mentally so I still buried that and uh, it came back to bite me in the end so how how um how are things now like you've written the book um, how is it being received and um, like since you've talked to, you mentioned you, you for a long time didn't talk to anyone but your wife, but um, um, I, I assume you've talked to your, your family about it now and like it's all out there. Um, how are you feeling with all of that, you know, being so public now? It was very challenging at first. I went to see Doug McLean in March. He was one of the first people I told outside of immediate family and close friends. And uh, it was difficult to get the words out. I was sputtering and 
stumbling over uh, trying to tell him I had a mental illness, and he was surprised. And but he certainly said, and he said to me, "I wish I could have helped you," but I said, "You can't because I would have never told you at that back in those days." But um, and I asked him to write the forward, and since then it has just been a, a continuous flow of reconnecting with the players I've pushed away for the last two decades, uh, including guys like. Another former Rochester American, Scott Metcalf, who I mm-hmm. played junior with in Kingston, and uh, a friend, another uh, Scott Pearson, who's an ex-Saber mm-hmm. in Toronto Maple Leaf. He played with me in Kingston as well. He was the best man at my wedding. And um, Doug McLean, Rob Laird, my former coach. Um, Jack Button drafted me uh, back in the day. He's not, no longer with us, but his sons, Craig Button and yeah. Todd Button, uh, reached out, and I've, I've, they've read the book as well. Um, recently... Kenny Albert reached out to me. He was the play-by-play mm-hmm. man with the Skipjacks when I was in there for my last uh, couple of years. So it's been incredible to have all these the, the hockey family coming back to me. As I, I really thought they had disowned me, but they didn't. It was just me convinced my brain telling me lies. Well, Steve, it's been a pleasure getting to know you here. You're a good writer, and it's a good story. And I think it's also something not that we really, if it isn't self-evident. Uh, it would be, of course, relatable and interesting to players who played sports and then left sports because that in and of itself is tumultuous and challenging for a lot of guys, you know, I've heard and read. So um, I think people might relate to that, too, if that's if that's their story. Uh, good luck. Thanks uh, for talking with us. Thank you. And uh, I'm a huge Bills fan, which... Uh... And I so you know I, I was hoping Mike you'd say do you have any questions for us because that's your famous line. Yes, well please ask if you do. I I uh, should have said that. Uh, yes, because uh, I always look forward to that when you ask your guests. So uh, my question was going to be, do you think the Bills are a playoff team? Well, it's possible. I mean, they're in the middle, and all the teams in the middle have a chance. Um, I wouldn't, I'm not assuming they are, I'm not expecting them to be, but you know, they certainly are not, they're not Miami or something where you'd think that's almost definitely not happening. Yeah. The the Patriots make it particularly challenging. Uh, Steve, you know how often we talk about that. If you listen to the show on any kind of basis as a bills fan, like the, you got to win the division or you got to battle the vast middle class of the entire conference for two spots. And I mean, that is a tough way to live. Yes, I know it's, uh, I've listened to you guys talk about Mr. Brady and Mr. Belichick for many years. Um, yes, it is very challenging being in that division. Yeah. They're the only two people who've been working together longer than we have. <laughs> Brady and Belichick, yeah. little known fact. All right. Thank you for writing this book, really. I, the, the, the content, I think, is important, and it's very well done. So congratulations to you for doing it. Thank you, and thank you for having me on. It's been a real thrill for me. All right, I thought that was a great interview there. Steve Septel, I hope you enjoyed it. Um, and uh, you can check out all of our stuff from throughout the day at WGR550.com and the radio.com app. But that's going to do it for me tonight. So thank you, everybody, for listening. I'll be back with you tomorrow at 7. It'll be my last show of the week because, of course, Friday will be Bills at Lions. So we'll have a little preview of the preseason matchup tomorrow night. Running back, I didn't get into that today. Gore and McCoy are going to play. We'll talk a little bit about that as well as wide receiver and some of the other positions we'll be looking for in the Bills' third preseason game. But for uh, you, for those of you that are going to be staying, stay tuned. Um, NASCAR fans, especially, you'll want to stick around because Pit Reporters is on the way next. This has been the Nightcap with Jody Biasi here on WGR.
T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.